This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, before we turn to dust. In 2008, a man in Italy, in a small village outside Venice, shot and killed his sleeping wife, then put the gun to his own head. When the local newspaper ran the story, they found a psychiatrist who explained what happened, a guy, by the way, who had never met the couple. The woman had suffered from Alzheimer's, he said, for a decade and a half. So the man, in an act of, quote, extreme love, unquote, euthanized her, his wife of 50 years, after which he was so bereft at finding himself without the love of his life that he shot himself too. The psychiatrist asked the readers to have empathy for the loving husband. Quote, imagine the atrocious inner conflict he must have endured, unquote. In reality, this loving husband was a lifelong fascist who kept a bust of Mussolini locked away in a closet and who physically and psychologically abused his wife throughout their marriage, as well as their two daughters, disappointed as he was that his wife had not given him a male heir. Finally, this male heir did come along in the form of a grandson. The idea was that the grandson would continue the lineage of his clan that had been in Venice almost a thousand years. But that didn't happen. When the grandson was seven years old, he moved away, together with his Italian mother and Iranian father, to Abu Dhabi in the UAE, where almost everyone is foreign. And he grew up speaking Italian, French, English, and Arabic. He has been moving ever since. Today, the poet, essayist, and translator Andre Nafis Saheli lives in California, to which he dedicated many of the poems in his latest collection, titled High Desert. Here's our conversation. The ways in which you led your life, it makes me feel like you're as far away from your grandfather as can be. You know, like you grew up in this country where nine out of ten people are foreign. You know, you grew up speaking four languages, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And then since then, you've also moved so often that, you know, you couldn't glorify your quote-unquote high mat if your life depended on it. (laughs) Um, But you also lived in a place where... Let me see, like, despite the fact that there were nine out of ten people were foreigners, it was hardly, you know, a cosmopolitan paradise because of this system called kafala. Mm. Uh, So can you give me a bit of a primer on what it is and how it affected your family in particular? Yeah. Um, So my father's been working in the UAE on and off since um, 1980. So he really saw the transformation of the country from essentially a a post-colonial backwater with very little infrastructure into the um, first class welfare state that it is today. And he was part of this generation that essentially built the place from scratch. One among millions, it has to be said. And under that system, essentially, there's no such thing as the civic kind of right to belong. It doesn't matter how long you stay in that country. It could be 10 years, it could be 20, it could be 30. You never acquire citizenship. You can never acquire, for example, like the U.S.'s version of the green card where you're not a citizen, but you are a permanent resident and all the civic rights, however limited, that come with that. 
it doesn't matter if you've been there for 30 years, you're still someone who's just passing through. And that means that there's also this idea that people shouldn't mix. So the Emiratis very much keep to themselves. They have their own communities. And even within the foreign community, you'll find that there are neighborhoods just for Indian people or just for Arabs or just for Europeans. And so it was a, an intensely segregated place. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And can you just tell me a little bit more about like what that the practical implications are of not being a citizen, you know, when it comes to like health care and legal protections or education or like any number of things. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the implications are, as you can imagine, endless, really. You know, recently I've been having trouble with my leg again because um, about 20 years ago I had an accident in Abu Dhabi and I've got a metal plate in my leg. And part of the reason I'm still having medical issues in that regard is because the healthcare that I got in Abu Dhabi was atrocious. I mean, essentially I was sent to a hospital where workers were sent to die. And it's something that I witnessed firsthand, unfortunately. This was when I was 16. Wow. And I think the experience has haunted me ever since. But I still consider myself immensely lucky because I survived. Yeah, yeah. And I think that when it comes to the separation between the Emirati locals and the, the foreigners of whatever stripe is that there's no habeas corpus, for example, so that there are no legal rights that one can rely on. Um, workers, especially coming from South Asia, their passports get confiscated by employers. And essentially under the kafala system, you are essentially living a life of indentured servitude because employers tend to not just confiscate your passport, but they are, are your employment providers. They are also within that system, your housing providers, and they're also your visa sponsors. So there, there's no such thing as skiving off at work because that immediately threatens not just your position, but your housing and your ability to remain within the country. One of the reasons that I left at the age of 18 was because I actually uh, ran out of my father's visa because my father was able to sponsor his children under his own visa up until the age of 18. And so when that clock ran out, I had two very simple choices. Either I left the UAE and made my fortune elsewhere, or I would remain in the UAE, find myself a job, and then with that job would come the offer of visa sponsorship and housing, because they're usually quite closely related. Mm. I think in the case of a lot of, let's say, more privileged Westerners, there can be a slight degree of separation where your employer is not necessarily also your visa sponsor or your landlord, but that's limited to a very small section of the people there. Wow. Yeah. And so the majority have to live under that system. And there's some offshoots that I think that were of that practice that I think were truly terrifying. I mean, um, Emirati women, for example, who for the most part have been discouraged from entering working life, were nonetheless allowed, this was seen as a way in which they could earn some money independently of their male relatives. Um, they were given the right to sponsor up to three taxi drivers under their own sort of personal citizenship, let's say. And what do you mean that that was an alternative to make or like an, a possibility for them to make money? What was in it for them? Did they make money of that? Well, yes, because it's a business. So they were able to sponsor visas, meaning they were then entitled to a percentage of said taxi driver's earnings. So these taxi drivers were essentially being tithed. Um, and quite often they would also help provide accommodation, which mm -hmm. then meant, you know, making additional income. Um, 
So essentially there, immigrants in the UAE, I think, were very much seen as just money-making instruments rather than, than real people. And there was also this idea, and I think this is something that the Emiratis don't often like to talk about, but there's this idea running through their recent history whereby they saw immigration as a necessary evil in order to essentially benefit from the vast natural resources they possess, chiefly oil and gas. But that at the same time, this taint of immigration would would eventually be wiped clean and they would go back to an ethnically pure society where they could thrive just amongst each other. And that legacy, those, you know, 40, 50 years where essentially their country was built up from scratch, none of the so-called temporary people would remain. They wouldn't intermarry either. I mean, I remember when I was in my early to mid-teens, one of my closest friends was Emirati. His father was Emirati and belonged to quite a prominent family, actually. And... Um, uh, at around the time that we were 14, he was temporarily stripped of his citizenship because he had an American mother. And there was this policy that, no, actually, you, you have to be a full-blooded Emirati in order to maintain your citizenship. I think that was reversed precisely because his father belonged to an influential family. But that is something that a lot of people would not have been able to do. And it's something that's also been quite frowned upon. Mm, wow. So it, it was it was an intensely ironic situation, you know, because essentially they had almost overnight created this very cosmopolitan society that then they spent most of their time trying to evade and trying to run away from. And again, there's this idea that you could just wipe the slate clean at some point and go back to the way things were, yeah. which is, of course, ridiculous in the sense that even if they never had the need to import foreigners in order to build up this country... The fact that they went from a nomadic society where, you know, in the summer they would settle by the sea and go diving for pearls. And in the winter, they would go back to their oasis towns in the desert and farm. That way of life was completely destroyed by the advent of oil um, and by the decisions they made. So there's no going back. And, you know, to, tie, <laughs> to loop this back to the legacy of fascism, I think that in many ways that's and I, and I wouldn't necessarily describe the Emirati government as fascist. But there's definitely overlap in the sense that fascism is built on this idea that former glories can be recaptured so long as you're manly and strong enough to actually single-handedly rescue humanity from the so-called mistakes that it made, that you can press the rewind button, the reset button. Mm -hmm. And that's just not something that we've seen at any point in civilization. Change is inarrestable. Um, yeah. yeah. I was wondering if we can get to a poem from High Desert. It's the one on page 13, The Other Side of Nowhere. Absolutely. But before you read it, can you give me a little bit of context about what happened to your father? Yeah, um, my uh, father was um, briefly put in prison. And again, this is <laughs> partly the, if not entirely, the result of the fact that immigrants there have no legal recourse whatsoever. He was working for a real estate company and money went missing. Eventually it turned out it had been the mismanagement of a, a senior official at that company. But essentially, until they could figure out what was going on, they decided to jail the majority of people working in that office. Essentially, the idea was put everyone in jail and then we'll figure out who's actually guilty or not. So he wound up spending about four months in prison while the authorities sorted out exactly who was at fault. 
And I think one of the most grievous injuries done to him as well is he was only allowed out at the time on the condition of him signing a document that said that he would never sue the government or the company itself for wrongful imprisonment, which I always found darkly humorous in many ways because of the fact that he never needed to sign that document in the first place because as an immigrant, he didn't really have the right to sue the government. So it felt like unnecessary insurance that the government took out. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, Almost like humiliation so, or something. Essentially, yes. And I think the worst part of it for him was after spending four months in prison completely unjustly, he then went back to work for that company. And and the reason he went back to work for that company is because especially once you've been in prison, it's very difficult to find employment elsewhere, you know. Wow. Um, and I would love to sit here and tell you that this was an unusual situation. Um, unfortunately, from a very young age, I, I always knew that there was a chance that something like that might happen purely because you would see it happen to other people. And part of me always thought, and, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I had this <laughs> innate, you know, predictive powers, but I think because I'd seen horrific things happened to people who didn't really deserve it. I mean, I remember someone who worked with my father ended up having a heart attack on a construction site because when you're working in 50 degrees Celsius temperatures, you're going to eventually have one. And he was then fired from the company he was working from because he'd taken medical leave, essentially, because he'd had a heart attack at work. So when you see things happen that are like that, it would be very presumptuous to think that it's never going to affect you or people that you care about. And so we always felt like we were living on the edge of a precipice um, where something like this could just easily push you over like the wind. Yeah, yeah. And then in the poem, you talk about bankruptcy and homelessness. Like how was that a result of this imprisonment or what was that? Largely, yes. Uh, when it happened, my mother had to empty out the entire house and sell her a piece of furniture or personal item that she had in order to pay for the legal defense, which, uh, again, it was another layer of humiliation in the sense that it was almost, in a sense, wasted money because the fact that no, no brilliant defense could have gotten him out of prison. It was just determined by the people in power who put him in that position. But I think one of the stipulations of going to court was the fact that you had to be represented by a lawyer and lawyers aren't cheap um yeah and so that 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 was mm. the background to the poem and i think this was a poem that was based on an experience that happened about a year later when i went to italy where my parents had kept a few things in storage and it was the very few last things that they had in their possession and essentially i had to to rescue a few prized family heirlooms and uh and throw out the rest uh, because they couldn't afford the storage fees at that point yeah so yeah, so uh, take it away. The other side of nowhere. 30 feet above the ground, in a warehouse in the industrial outskirts of a city we'd never lived in, I knelt inside the near-empty container to contemplate our nomadic misery. Mismatched chairs, kitchen appliances older than me, baby clothes, framed diplomas, books in a language my father never taught me, it would have stunted my assimilation. And in my head, an email from my mother that read, we're doomed, save what you can. So there I was, on the other side of nowhere in sunny Italy. Despite the technological changes around us, disasters still travel in telegrams. 
bankrupt, stop, sorry, stop, homeless, stop. Remember, brother, when our parents calling us global citizens inspired great hope? But the world proved too tribal for us. And so your suitcase shall be your only friend, while Shi Huang's fantasy of a godly wall proliferates across the planet. Weeks ago, two cops in Catania stung a 16-year-old boy from Darfur with cattle prods to impart the following lesson. Whatever the government says, you're not welcome here. As if one needed the reminder. All across the boot, the green-shirted faithful lift their pitchforks to chase the monster of otherness. So don't ask me why I love to leave and hate returning. Is the answer somewhere inside this container? It isn't. But remember Cicero's saying, there's no cure for exile except to love every city as you would your own. But the past is always easier. When I was young, I fancied myself Indiana Jones. Later, with erudition, came realer idols. Petrie, Schliemann, Carter, Kenyon. But you cannot rescue history from dust. All you save one day will crumble in your hand. Trash or burn the rest, I told the warehouse worker as we rode the forklift back to earth. Damn whoever said that hell was down below. They clearly never went there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, such casual heartbreak in your poems. <laughs> like the tone that you hit is uh, like you're not melodramatic in any way. Um, uh, I wouldn't call it jaded either. You know, it's like you strike that rare balance between like, yeah, I'm not shocked anymore, but the heartbreak is still there. Um, I think that's the inheritance of the promised land, you know, in many ways where uh, it's like I was saying earlier, uh, the fact that we always lived on the edge of the precipice. We always knew that something like this might happen. So I think the casual heartbreak is probably rooted in that, in the fact that I think before I saw this play out in my own family, I'd see it play out in the families of others. It was a place where people arrived all of a sudden and vanished all of a sudden, and everything always felt quite precarious. Yeah, I mean, I was also interested in, you know, that quote by Cicero, you know, that you include in this poem, who says, you know, that there's no cure for exile, except to love every city as you would your own. And since you've moved quite a bit, what do you do in each place that eventually may allow you to come to love it? So one of the, the ways that I've bonded myself to places really has been through their history, through talking to people and listening to these fantastic stories of family heritage and communities that once were and how they've changed over the years and how different they are today from what they used to be and seeing the same old patterns that we see in a lot of societies around the world, partly because with history, I think we can unearth a lot of the universalities that really bind us together despite of the different places where we've been raised or where we live. You know, I mean, this earlier that poem mentioned Shi Huang and the, the completion of the Great Wall of China. It's not, you know, that wasn't the first society to come up with walls. Unfortunately, so long as there have been people, we've had walls to keep them out mm -hmm. or keep them in, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um, I think history can be a healthy reminder that the course that we're currently on 
has been built over an endless pile of bones. Um, in fact, before I wanted to be a poet, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Huh. Um, there was something about the craft of digging history from the soil that really appealed to me. Um, you know, the British poet Anthony Thwaite had this marvelous quote where he said, you know, essentially poetry is the archaeology of memory. Hmm. And I remember reading that very early on and thinking, yes, that's exactly what it what it feels like to me, at least. And I know, you know, a poem can be a million different things, but I think that's one of the things that it is to me, the archaeology of memory, the ability to resurrect a moment that people can situate themselves in without necessarily belonging to a place. Okay, so is that the sense in which I should understand that? Like, there's no cure for exile except to love every city as you would your own. Is it sort of like in a darker sense, you know, not like love, love, but basically, you know, investigate every new city as your own, like read up on the history of it, see in which ways it is like the other places that you've known. Is that what you mean? Like that its darkness is your darkness, something like that. I think it's the meaning that I've drawn from it most often in the sense that to seek to understand, never to understand because we never get there, but to seek to understand is to take the first steps in love. And one of the things that I was reminded of over the years as well is that whenever I've felt a certain level of resentment about the places that I've linked to, you know, essentially I resent Italy where I spent part of my early youth. I resent Abu Dhabi because of the things that it did to my family. There's, there's no hate without love. It's always rooted in that equation. It's a thwarted love in many ways. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, though, because especially in the United States, I mean, especially as we just mentioned in lots of other places, too. But, you know, since I live here, mm -hmm. you know, history is very contentious here right now. Right. I mean, like you have people who basically want a fantasy, like a kind of glorification myth, you know, of the U.S. as this exceptional nation and kind of gloss over all the bad things. And then you have other people who are like, no, you know, we cannot be a country um, with a future unless we face the past. Um, and I'm so interested in, the, you know, the fact that you bring love into that. Like, can you tell me how that works for you? You know, why, how is there a connection between looking at the absolute most abysmal parts of history and then feeling love? <laughs> Well, that's well, that's the the seeking to understand that I was referring to earlier. I think there's this need to gain that perspective before you can really, I think, approach anything resembling love. I think when it comes to finding the beauty in the midst of all this bleakness and horror, that seems like the only accurate way to write about life for me anyway. In the sense that the good and the bad have always mixed quite evenly in my experience in the places where I've lived, where there's been much to be happy about and also enough to break your heart. Yeah. Um, you know, something that really comes to mind, um, the governor of California, Kevin Newsom, put out this series of ads aimed at people in Texas and Florida where he said, you know, join us in California where we still believe in in freedom. And I think, yes, all right, but, you know, I'd like to see a California that also believes in housing rights, that also believes in funding education and healthcare, that also believes in the police not having the right to bulldoze shanty towns just because they feel like it. Um, and so it was interesting to try and, and put myself in an opposition to a place that I essentially love, because right now I, I'm, I feel deeply grateful for the fact that I'm able to live there. I feel 
deeply happy about it. It's a place where I've, I've rooted myself, I think, both emotionally and intellectually. But it's still a place that I want to see critically because I've, I think that there's love does not equate to unquestioning loyalty. And here we go, looping back again, I think, to the legacy of fascism, yeah. right? Because I think that that's, that's the beating heart of fascism. What we are is so pure and so good that any kind of so-called bastardization or hybridization or change innately threatens that state of being. And so in order to be loyal to the place that you are genetically bound to, you must have this vision of it that is undiluted by anything else that you may have experienced in life. And that to me seems to be the greatest folly of all. I was wondering if we can get to a poem, the title poem, actually, of your collection, High Desert. And it's a poem about you driving around the kind of desert around L.A. And I was just wondering, like, can you tell me a little bit about that trip or those trips? I don't know if it was like one big trip. Yeah. Uh, like, where did you go and what made you interested? Yeah. So High Desert, the poem specifically is set mostly in the high desert of Los Angeles by Mojave. <laughs> But the genesis of High Desert, essentially the book in general, was um, my partner and I recently moved to Davis in the north of the state. But um, we spent five or six years in Los Angeles. And what we would do is whenever we had some time off or some money, we would um, go off on road trips all over primarily the southwest. So we visited California extensively, primarily the, the south and the center of the state. But then we also took trips to Arizona, to New Mexico, to Utah, and mm. various different different parts of the book were written in those states. So it's really this ode to the Southwest in many ways. And I think it was it was an effort to to try and understand the place that I felt had been such a gift to me. Um, you know, there's this quote in the book, which was, I did not choose California, it was given to me by the great Czeslo Milos. Um, and I remember when I read that, I felt, yes, that's exactly how I feel. I need <laughs> to put that quote in, in the book yes. because I felt that in many ways, uh, California lifted the weight of uh, a lot of the personal baggage that I was carrying at the time, enough for me to start thinking about my place in the world, I think, more cogently than I had before. Why? Because yeah. I seriously, I'm so, I, I don't want to like accuse mm. you of anything, you know, but I lived in L.A. for a few mm. years, too, and I've never felt so uprooted anywhere. <laughs> what, what is it about that place specifically that made you feel, uh, you know, released from some of the baggage? Yeah, no, that's, that's I think, a, an incredibly pertinent question. I mean, I, I think that um, L.A., that's exactly the right feeling to have in L.A. Uh, I think it's a city where it's incredibly difficult to feel rooted. And that was kind of part of the point for me. I think what helped there, in a sense, was, you know, when it came to Italy, I had this incredibly dark inheritance from my, my mother's side of the family, embodied, really, in this almost villainous figure of, of the grandfather, 
my connection to Iran was always very tenuous because of the fact that my my father had been exiled. Essentially, he was given a choice, you know, either we put you in front of the firing squad or you leave. And so he left and were banned from returning because of his political activities. So it's not a place I really got to know. And I then went to England to go to university, essentially. But England, while it may have felt liberating in some ways, it was also, I mean, it was under no illusions in the sense that the UAE was a former British colony. So I think like a lot of writers, what I'd done was gravitate towards the heart of empire. It's a story, <laughs> it's a story as old as, as, old as literature itself, yes. you know, um, whether for writers born in the Caribbean or various parts of Africa or East Asia or any parts of the former empire, when things don't work out where you're presently situated, you can always catch a boat to the heart of empire and see if things might work out there. Right. And so it, it's not a place where I was ever able to escape any of this, um, any of the personal inheritance that I'd wound up with. I mean, I remember in the days living in London, the Emirati government financed the creation of a, a part of the, the underground network. And so I saw maps bearing the title, you know, Emirates Line on, on the London underground. So it's not, <laughs> it's not a place where I was able to yeah. really stop thinking about the Emirates. Whereas California, you know, essentially I moved to the U.S. to be with my partner. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made, uh, primarily because I got to be with her. But California was something that neither of us had really seen coming. So it was it was neutral ground for both of us in many ways. Um, and I think it was somewhere where I finally felt at ease with my impermanence, with my rootlessness. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. And it sort of answers like my puzzlement, right? Like, well, the reason that you felt rooted there was because rootlessness was at the heart of the place, you know? So... Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's partly something about the landscape there where there's something because I, I find the desert innately beautiful. I think obviously I'm biased. I've lived in deserts for, I would say, a great deal of my life, whether it's in California or in the UAE. There's something about that landscape that almost erases human presence far quicker than one would imagine. You know, it's hard for the machinations of humanity to survive the harshness of the heat and the, the friction of the sand. And the desert really swallows up a lot that's human. And so there was something about the impermanence of artificial structures within the desert that also led me to, to yeah, to, to feel at one with this impermanence, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to read the poem? Sure. Um, it's on page 50. Hi, desert. Time to listen to my bones, to seek a stillness known only to deserts. Pause, traveler, and behold this empire of absences, the snowy salt beds of vanished lakes, the outlines of decommissioned railroads, the petroglyphs of people murdered long ago, and all around, nearly limitless stretches of cottonwood, willow, and mesquite tufting out of the sand. All day, I drive along mummified freeways, from Amboy to Zizix, and zip past Cadiz, Baghdad, and Siberia in under an hour's time. The ghost towns of America's Main Street an unbroken montage of smokestacks, silhouettes of sidewalks, the boarded remains of small businesses. There is no better backdrop for the mirage of permanent boom times than the desert. A landscape 
where despite claims to the contrary, no town was too tough to die. Once genocide had cleared the country, an extractionist lust was unleashed on the West. The blunt simplicity of place names, a shrine to these seekers' obsessions. Carbondale, Copperopolis, Oroville, Petrolia. Spartan mockeries of morals and models left behind and forgotten. Towns where sheriffs rubbed trains at gunpoint or smuggled liquor across the border, only to blame it on the Mexicans. Next to no sign now of the old tribes, the trappers, the pioneers. Yet no shortage of jackrabbit meth labs, tin cans, rusted lawn chairs, gas stations, and fall 50s diners. Dead or alive, each one of them greets me with the same sign, the same four planks of wood. Name, date of establishment, elevation, and population. The latter always in the single or double digits. Exhausted, I lie down on the sand and warm my feet by the embers of this final frontier. And consider how strange it is that it's here, where after decades of rootlessness, I abandon all cravings for permanence. Thank you. Yeah, that ending is so beautiful. I mean, you've already explained it now, but um, yeah, exhausted, I lie down on the sand and warm my feet by the embers of this final frontier and consider how strange it is that it's here where after decades of rootlessness, I abandon all cravings for permanence. Um, it's also a beautiful way to put it. You know, it's like you, you're not really saying, I now feel rooted here. You say, I abandon all cravings for permanence. <laughs> you know, it's like a slight nuance there. Because it is a natural craving, you know, I think that it's uh, it's, it's something that we're all we're all born with, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the need to belong. But I think there's such beauty to be gained in realizing that you can belong in a variety of places. We've always fought against that idea. I think, again, going back to fascism, part of what it seeks to do is to negate that idea, to prove that it's unworkable. Frankly, I think, because if uh, people were able to belong in multiple different places, then it'd be far more difficult to control them, essentially. If you keep everyone inside the wall, then you can control them. Uh, if there's no such thing as walls, then power sort of just evaporates. Yeah. And so there's a vested interest in keeping those walls up, in, in telling people that you can only belong to one city and one country. And if you try to be anything else, then you're deviating from a so-called natural path. Yeah, the natural path is so creepy already. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is ah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm also so interested in what you were saying about the way the the desert almost rejects human settlement in any kind of permanent way because the the sand erodes whatever you put in there. You know, as you say in this poem, tin cans, rusted lawn chairs. Yeah, like within seemingly minutes, the place is reduced to what archaeologists would find after centuries somewhere else, you know? And uh, yeah, I'm just so interested in like your long fascination with the desert. And in that first poem that we read, the one about the storage container, you write, you cannot rescue history from dust. But I also feel like that is the project of your work, trying to rescue history from dust, <laughs> whether that is in your poems 
or it's in your translations where you make a real effort to find writers that have been forgotten by history. Yeah. Uh, also in your editorial work, you know, you're the editor of Poetry London. And there too, you seem to always put in the effort to find poets that, unless someone would like sort of find them and put them on this bigger platform, they could very easily be forgotten before they're even, I mean, like, you know, instead of being forgotten, they, they could very easily be never known. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm just curious about that contradiction. On the one hand, you say you cannot rescue <laughs> history from dust. Yeah. On the other hand, that's all you're basically trying to do. No, absolutely. And it's uh, and you're absolutely right. I think for me, in many ways, everything revolves around entropy. And I think the desert came in quite neatly into that in the sense that I remember I was about 12 at the time. My father's an architect. And uh, the reason that he found himself in the Emirates is because there was plenty of work for architects at the time. Like I said, they had, <laughs> right. they had a whole country to build and they wanted it built quickly, too. So there was lots of work for him and for people like him. And I remember one of the things that he was always talk about when he would come home is that he would face difficulty in convincing his employers to use more durable, i.e. more expensive materials because of the fact that the twin forces of desert heat mixed in with the sand and also the seawater, because it was a, it's a city built on an island, um, would coalesce and essentially eat buildings away in an incredibly short amount of time. So the average lifespan of a building that was being constructed in the Emirates in my youth, we're talking 10 years. And wow. then they would be so broken down that they would find it easier to tear them down and build a new one in its place than to actually maintain it or upkeep it. So there I was in, in the Emirates seeing that not just, I wasn't just in a community of temporary people, but I was also situated in a city of temporary structures. And everything was always breaking down around me, whether whether it was the school bus that took us to school or the buildings that we lived in or people's lives, essentially. And as, as dramatic as that sounds, I think it's, it's quite an accurate description of the place. And so witnessing this kind of centrifuge of entropy in the UAE, um, I think created this fascination to find it elsewhere. And lo and behold, I have found it everywhere else that I've gone. Because again, we're all governed by the laws of the same physical world that uh, we yeah. happen to live in. And so there's going to be these similarities that come across in whichever culture, whichever continent you're in, whichever language is spoken. The words that we use to describe these changes differ, but the root meaning hardly ever differs. So mm -hmm. I think you're right. There is this contradiction that I, on the one hand, I say you cannot rescue history from dust, but on the other, I try to maintain this historical knowledge, the, the experiences that can be learned from, from poems. And I think primarily that was because when I was younger and reading poems, it was wanting to find the answers on how to live a life that meant something. And I think I was always drawn to the poets that really try to answer those questions. You never answer them fully, but you try to answer those questions. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if we can read one last poem. Absolutely. That I think is sort of about uh, leaving traces, however fleeting, in the dust. It's actually like one of your, you know, quote unquote, found poems or, you know, mm -hmm. um, documentary poems or however you want to describe them. It's the one called John Samuelson on page 65. 
Great. I'm really glad you liked that one, actually, because um, it was one of the very first that I wrote for that series. The first that I wrote for that series. And I remember it was one of the, the found poems. Because, yeah, essentially, it's a documentary sequence composed of found poems, you know, where all the words are drawn from the documents left behind by the historical figures I'm discussing. So whether it's letters or autobiographies. Um, and it was the first one that made me think I can really try to tell... The history of California, as I've learned it, but escaping the lyric eye, escaping my own perspective, in a sense, because I didn't want the entire book to be California's history as told by by Andre Nafisaly. Like I, <laughs> I, I felt that there was there was definitely a limit to that, and I think part of the problem that we've had as well in in recent decades was we've had such a proliferation of information technology that we're drowning in it. And I think that it's hard to keep a lot of the people who've lived in their texts in mind. And so I think a large part of the job for intellectuals is to, again, rescue these people from oblivion. And so, yeah, I wrote that poem wanting to, to essentially hand the mic over to someone else <laughs> and have them have their say. And who was John Samuelson? Well, that's well, that's a question that's still unanswered in many ways. The man is shrouded in mystery. So as far as we know, he was a Swedish immigrant to the U.S. He was born in Sweden sometime, some say in the 1870s, some say in the 1880s, who immigrated to the U.S., uh, traveled quite a bit within the U.S., then found himself in the high desert of Los Angeles. This was the 1920s, essentially right after World War One where there was a minor gold rush in the high desert and things didn't work out for him. Like a lot of the, the gold rushes, they were just, uh, they didn't lead to anywhere and in fact ruined more lives than they improved. But he found himself there and the utter misery of not being able to strike it rich and also finding himself removed from his homeland led him to etching these completely warped kind of Moses-style commandments and half-poems and uh, twisted truths and political statements onto these large slabs of rock, which now, you know, stand as a monument to him in the Mojave Desert, not far from the mine where he used to try and find his gold. And so there's these 11 slabs of rock where you can go visit them today and and see all these ramblings, essentially, of this deluded immigrant who wasn't able to, to strike it rich. And I ended up piecing together various parts of statements found on these slabs of rock into the poem. So that was the origin. Um, in terms of his end, that also is shrouded in mystery. Some say that he went to a logging camp and then died under mysterious circumstances. There was also talk of him murdering someone in Compton. The record does seem to mostly agree on the fact that he died in some sanatorium sometime in the 1950s, but almost nothing is known of his life. And I, I, I felt that in a way that it was partly all these unresolved question marks that really drew me to the person and also what he represented. You know, there's this sense in which he almost stands as a monument for the lives of immigrants that were drawn to that part of the state around that time. Um, but yeah, so. John Samuelson, miner and homesteader. Wake up, you tax and bond slaves. God made man, but Henry Ford put wheels under him. The key to life is contact. Hell is here on earth and nowhere else. We have made most of it ourselves. The milk of human kindness ain't got thick cream on it for all of us. Ask Hoover. 
Judge Ben Lindsay understands humanity. Nature is God. Study nature. Neither money's laws nor armies can stop the human mind. With time, the oceans grind the hardest granite into sand. Nothing proven after death. So that's uh, John Samuelson, who, yeah, like I said, I think, you know, these slabs of rock, which do feel very biblical for obvious reasons. Yeah. I think um, we're full of these, you know, half-baked political statements. He clearly didn't like Herbert Hoover, but then again, <laughs> who did at the time? And I just love these aphoristic kind of quality to to some of his lines, like the milk of human kindness ain't got thick cream on it for all of us. That was, yeah, when I remember reading that, I, I remember thinking, yes, you know, I mean, this is someone who, yeah, who finds himself in the utter desolation of the desert. You know, I think um, one of the other quotes I ended up putting in the book to preface the section was by one of my favorite writers, the Libyan writer, Ibrahim Alconi, where he says, you know, only in the desert can you visit death and come back alive. And I think that's exactly what happened happened to John Samuelson. He reached the end of his journey there, knew that he wasn't going to strike it rich. And under the heat of the sun, he starts to go a little crazy, but he also makes sense in a way that I think many people can relate to. And again, I think we go back to the, the mixture of the good and bad, the constant pull towards entropy, but then the need to rescue history back, to pull it back in a, in a direction where we can make something of it, right? Because it's our legacy. It's our human legacy. Yeah. Um, if we don't remember, who will? Yeah. And I also think it's like so profoundly moving that this man who is a minor and a pretty lonely migrant, probably, mm. you know, I mean, the key to life is contact is something that he writes probably because he didn't have a lot of it, you know? Um, exactly. That's exactly uh, right. And yeah, what I find so beautiful is that this very unmoored man still had this like urge to like leave his legacy, you know, like or leave traces of his existence and his thoughts and his insights by carving them in rocks. You know, I, I think it's really moving. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think, again, you know, so little survives of that moment in history where essentially, you know, you go out to this particular part of the Mojave Desert and you find these slabs of rock. You might find some rusting wooden frames from the old mine shafts. And that's really about it. Maybe like a bucket lying around, uh, an old rusted bucket, but that's that's really it. And, you know, go back in a hundred years and even those won't be left apart from the slabs of rock. And perhaps by then the the sand and wind will have eroded most of the words away and made them illegible. Right. Yeah. 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 I have one last question. Because, um, like, you know, the way you engage with history, knowing that history ultimately will prevail in the sense that we will all become history, <laughs> but then also like this continuous effort to save every shard we can. Um, what drives you to keep on engaging with history? Like what's, to put it really sort of ungenerously, like what's in it for you? What mm. do you get out of it? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <sighs> hmm. <laughs> Let me think of that for a second. Um, you know, earlier we were just talking about finding the beauty amidst the horror. And I think that that's quite possibly what's in it for me in the sense that you're right we're all going to become history at some point and the mission really is to catalog the beauty of humanity fighting against that physical inevitability 
Um, I think that's the neatest way I can put it, you know? Because it's almost, it's, it's, it's a case of beautiful failure, isn't it? And I, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's, if poetry isn't interested in beautiful failure, then what is it possibly interested in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Andre Nafis Saheli is the author of two poetry collections, The Promised Land, which came out in 2018, and High Desert, which just came out this summer. He also edited The Heart of a Stranger, an anthology of exile literature. He has translated over 20 poetry collections, novels, and travelogues, and he has written numerous essays. Today, he splits his time between California, where he is a lecturer at the University of California, Davis, and London, where he is the editor of Poetry London. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefus and Erik van der Westen. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>